you have a question about your home, call Ken the Contractor. I pulled up some carpet in my basement, and on the concrete floor there was linoleum put down. And the linoleum's coming up, but then the the part that's underneath the linoleum where it was glued, how can I get that up? Uh, there are <laughs> products that will re- will release the adhesive, if you will. It's a solvent. In some cases, though, you're probably going to have to take a floor scraper and it'll work a little quicker for you, but you're still going to take a lot of elbow grease. I wish I could tell you there was a real simple solution of just put something down and scrape it up with a shovel or something, but there's not that I know of. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here every week to take your calls and questions about your home, inside or out. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And you can also email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Some of you, even as you listen, are getting in the car or maybe in the car heading to your local floor covering store. And what's on your list today is looking for a hard floor product, meaning a ceramic, a brick, a quarry, maybe a glass, a porcelain, a stone, floor tile, or maybe a wall tile. We're going to take just a few moments today and talk about some of the differences in those and where they're best used and where you may best find a value. And let's talk a little bit about the types of tiles that are out there. So as you're traveling down the road, You can think a little bit about this. You can talk about it with your spouse. But there are so many types of products that are used for flooring, and not everything that's used for indoor flooring is proper for outdoor, meaning our patios, our sidewalks, so forth, and vice versa. Also, you're going to find that not all products that are made for floors are right for walls or the other way around. So there's an application for almost every product that keeps us safe, that will bond, that will adhere well, that will perform well. And many times, and I'm as guilty of this as everybody else, I'm driven by price point. And the price, the lowest price, is not always the right product for the application. And if we put the wrong product down, frankly, we're just wasting our money. Let's talk a moment about some of the types of products that are out there. And they really run the gamut. But some of the most common items that we would be familiar with would be ceramic tiles. Now, I'm going to give you some general names, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the differences But in the marketplace, we find ceramic tiles, again, one of the most commonly used in the United States. Quarry tile runs behind that. That's common in our homes, also in commercial applications. And then we have something that some of you will know as porcelain tile. And when we think of porcelain, many times you think of a bathtub. And no, we're not talking of things that relate to your bathtub. But we have porcelain tiles available. Then we move into the natural stones as well. We're looking at granite, at slate, at travertine, at marble, at onyx, at sandstone. If you name it, when you get into a natural stone, unless it's extremely soft, it has probably been used or currently used as a tile product. Now, all of these have different properties, different characteristics, and can be used in different ways. These tend to be natural products made out of uh, clay materials or are natural stone. There are other items out there that we don't typically think of that are also tiles. That includes glass material and pebble tiles. And these are a little on the extreme end, but as you go into that store today, as you're driving down the road saying, this guy really has me confused because I'm going to see all of these things, and I thought I just wanted floor tile. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the most common items. As I said, ceramic tends to be the most commonly used in our home. 
Now, ceramic tile comes in two forms. Also, it comes in a glazed and an unglazed finished. It's also the unglazed is typically referred to as a quarry tile. And quarry tile is going to have a smooth, fairly dull finish to it. A glazed tile will have one that has a sheen to it. Some may be a little uh, muted, but basically it has a sheen, and it can be very bright. It can be quite slippery as well. So ceramic tiles, as I said, are made from clay, and then they're heated. It's really that simple. The glaze on a ceramic tile is added after the firing of the clay, which creates the color of the tile and so forth. Now, quarry tile is both unglazed, or excuse me, is an unglazed ceramic tile. This is where the confusion comes in sometimes. So when you're in that store and you're looking at the finish, we're mesmerized by color and pattern and so forth. You have to think about the difference between these two, especially if you're using it on the floor and if it's in an area that's prone to anybody walking in with wet shoes, whether it's rainwater, snow in the wintertime, or just spilling water, such as kitchens or bathroom, because the glazed finish and safety do not go well together. So if you've got an area that's prone to any of those, you want to look at something with a slip-resistant finish, or you certainly want to consider the quarry tile, that being an unglazed finish. And that's quite common, especially in these kitchen and wet areas that we look at. Quarry tile, however, is somewhat porous because it doesn't have that glazed finish on the top, so it can become stained. And that's one reason people look at sealing either tile as well as the grout joint or some type of uh, an additional tile, and that may take us to the porcelain level. If you happen to be one of those folks or maybe a family that just does all kinds of cooking, you are the top of the line when it comes to a chef in your community, you may want to think a little harder about porcelain tile if you're in the process of redoing your kitchen or building a new one. Porcelain is a type of ceramic tile. The primary difference between porcelain and ceramic, though, is that porcelain is fired at a higher temperature, makes it much more dense and more moisture-resistant. So porcelain tiles are also less porous, and it makes them semi-stain resistant. These are ideal for areas where you have a great deal of traffic or a lot of water or potential for stain. And if you do a lot of cooking, hopefully everything stays in the pot and on the stove, but if not, uh, you may find that a porcelain is right for you. And for those of you that have heavy traffic areas, that's something I'm going to recommend to you. The other issue we have in hard tiles, and I'm staying with the two most common we have in this country, is that if you chip many of these tiles, the ceramic tile that have an applied finish on the surface, if you chip it, now you're seeing that red, typically a red clay or brown clay that's underneath it. Looks pretty unsightly if you've used that in a foyer or some other areas. Very difficult to patch and repair. There are repair kits for it, but it still looks like a patch. That's where the porcelain tile comes in. Porcelain tiles come in in, uh, our two different products, one that will still have an applied surface to it or an applied finish, but also... Uh, porcelain has a uh, is manufactured so that the color is throughout, so from top to bottom. If you chip it halfway through that tile, you've got the same color. You may have a divot, but you've got the same color. So, again, I want you to think about it. If you happen to be one of these top-notch chefs and uh, spending a lot of time in the kitchen, maybe the whole family does, or you're looking for something for your patio where there's a great deal of outdoor activities and you have some items that may damage the tile at some point, a porcelain might be a better choice. It's going to cost you more money. It's going to bond differently. It's going to hold better, but it's going to hold up long term. You're going to be much happier with that than many of the ceramics or standard quarries. It's just a little something to think about as you're driving to that tile store, even as we speak. 
And one quick question, as far as the folks who want to do it themselves or have a professional put it down, what's your thoughts on that? Well, all of these products are designed, and the materials are there today, spacers for grout joints, and the grout product are so user-friendly that if you're inclined to do these things yourself, you can. The biggest issue you'll have is cutting tile, and if you're doing it yourself, you always want to be sure you're doing a layout starting from the center line in both directions of a room. That way you have even border cuts around the perimeter. You don't have two inches on one side and eight inches on the other. Centerline layout, be sure you've got the right mastic for the right product. They're not all made the same. There's a different bonding agent for ceramic versus quarry, I mean, versus the, the porcelain, and depending on whether you're going over a concrete floor or a wood subfloor. So all those questions need to be asked, but if you're inclined to do it, have at it. Coming up this hour with Ken the Contractor, a half hour from now in the news, Ken will talk about the rebound in the housing market. And coming up at the bottom of the hour, one-on-one with Ken the Contractor, Ken will talk with a representative from QuickCrete about a product they've developed that can help you with difficult mortar and concrete repairs. Next, Ken takes your questions. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor along with Ken Patterson. Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. If you have a question for Ken, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's say hi to Cheryl who joins us right now. Hi, Cheryl. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Well, hello. Hi there. <laughs> I just um, am calling about a mildew problem I have in my basement. Okay. I have paneling down there and a rug, uh, carpeting. And I don't know really what to do about it. It kind of looks white, you know. I can see the mold at the at the bottom. Is this uh, showing up where the carpet meets the paneling? Is that where you're seeing it? Yes. Uh-huh. And typically, is it starting in the corners or just in one of the long walls? Uh, one of the long walls, the one that's uh, kind of backs up to where the house is under the ground. Okay. And all of the basement is covered, so you have no way of seeing the block or the concrete walls behind it at any location. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Is it a crawl space that exists behind this basement wall where you're seeing the the white mold? Uh, No, it's a finished basement, supposedly finished. (laughs) Okay. You say where it backs up to the house, though. Is 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 this a full basement? Yes. And it's uh, part of it. The front part of the house, it's uh, under the ground and you know how they dig out in the back and okay you can walk out all right well i'm going to mention two things so you first i should ask one more question have you had water problems in there in the past no i don't really have water problems okay but the fact that you have mold or mildew for it to develop says there has to be moisture okay. uh, that is one of the key ingredients that's always a sign that moisture is present uh-huh. and i want to give you a couple of simple items to to check one if you have a, a foundation drain system, and most homes do, unless the house is extremely old. Well, but, 1983. Okay, now that should be new enough that even by building code, you're, the builder was going to have to put in some type of a foundation drain tile or drain pipe system to collect mm-hmm. the water from the earth and to move it around the house and to discharge it away from the house. Huh. So, I haven't noticed anything like that. You have not. Okay, now these would be pipes that would be exposed somewhere out in the yard, maybe cut off at an angle, and this could be part of the issue that pipes were put in. They're going to be lower than your finished floor, mm-hmm. but if they have silted in with grass or leaves or just sand, mud over the years, then they no longer drain. So it's going to allow water to back up around that basement and uh-huh. work its way through the block walls, especially where the blocks sit on top of the foundation. Well, you know, I said something there. Laundry room, I can see the block. Okay. But it's not underground. Okay. 
Well, then you wouldn't have the same issue there. Okay. Do you have a basement sump pump? No, there's okay. nothing like that. So you, but you should have at least then some type of a foundation drain system. Hmm. You're saying you don't know that you have that. might be worth uh, having someone check that out, see if they can identify it, and where right. the grade comes along the sides of the house. If you've got to walk out on the backside, uh-huh. at that point it should only be probably uh, 16 to 24 inches, if that, below the surface of the ground. They could easily check right at each end, mm-hmm. take a shovel and see if there's a drain there. If there is, and there should be, given that it's built in 83, then they should be able to find the direction it's running and open the ends of it. Because if you have a problem now, you're likely to have a bigger problem in, in heavier rains as the ground becomes more saturated. Uh-huh. So, the, uh, that's, so that's an underground, what did you call it? It's a foundation drain pipe. Foundation. And they typically are mounted either beside or on top of the footing as long as they are below the finished floor. Code officials interpret or enforce that a little differently in different list parts of our listing area. But at the very least, it should be on top of the foundation, and it should be bedded in stone. And, again, what that does is allow the that pipe to collect groundwater so it can't force its way in against the block and relieve that and then discharge it around the house. Okay. And we've had some extremely rainy season. Water table's been high. You've had more moisture than normal in, in a short time period in your region. So you might give that a shot. I think that would be a good start. One other item that's quick and simple to look at, be sure you don't have any settlement around the house. Uh, immediately adjacent to the house so that you're funneling water back to those walls, you want to be sure your water is always flowing away from the house. Okay. What kind of a, a company should I call? Well, uh, initially I think you might want to look at a foundation and waterproofing company when you're looking at footing drains. Okay. And let them do that inspection for you. Cheryl, thank you. Good luck. It's Kim who joins us right now. Hi, Kim. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hello. How are you? Hi, Kim. Good. Thanks for your call. Thank you for um, taking my call. I have a question. We had an addition added onto our house probably in the 70s, and when they put the addition in, they moved the septic tank and stuff, and they filled it back up with dirt and didn't put, like, rocks or whatever in it, and they added on. Well, over the years, our foundation, I guess, has been sinking a little bit, and then the side of the wall in our basement, it's all above ground. It's cracked, and it's coming out. It's about three-fourths of a brick. It's like cinder blocks and then brick. So you're, it's you're talking about like three-fourths. You're talking about an opening that's two, three, four inches in some cases? Oh, yeah. It's probably a good two to three inches. It's moved. It's okay. shifted on that corner. Okay. What do you think is the best solution to fixing that? And then I had another question after that, too, about it. Well, clearly you have to resolve the issue, and that is the settlement issue. Now, the fact that this is built over a filled area, talking about the septic tank and perhaps some disturbed soil around that tank, it's not going to be easy to remedy after the fact. You're going to have to end up with some type of a pier support, some type of a uh, hydraulic cement, something that's going to take this down to solid bearings, soil, rock, something along those lines. That's part one. Okay. Secondly, you're going to have to deal with it in a manner that you can actually raise this foundation back up, and there are several methods in, in the market that will accommodate that, some more costly than others. Uh-huh. So that's really the remedy, the fact that you're in an existing home. It's hard to get underneath those slabs or even in crawl spaces. With You can't get there with heavy equipment and to modify that. So okay. th- those are the two things you're going to have to deal with, and I would always suggest that you or others that are dealing with this situation look at at least three bids from qualified people, look at their credentials, uh, and these will be foundation underpinning companies, companies that specialize in that, not only stopping the the product from or the house from continuously uh, failing, continuing to sink, but raising it back up and stopping it permanently. Okay, and do you think 
then which would you go with, the push peer? We did call somebody. They came out. Am I allowed to say the name? Uh, sure. It's J-E-S. Okay. No, it's not, it's not a company I'm familiar with, but I'll say this. Companies that I know something bad about, they crop up pretty rapidly, and that's not one I know anything negative about, so that's a good thing. Oh, good. So you've never heard anything negative on it. No, but I'll All say, right. so you're talking a push peer system. Yes. They said something about a push peer system. They would put like eight of those helical peers, I guess that's what you call it. Okay. Under our house, and they said that that should raise the foundation, lift it back up for well, us. A push peer system will do two things. One, first, it will do what I said. It will stabilize the structure. These uh-huh. are driven all the way down to resistance, either bedrock or to where the soil is so tight that it will support the load. Okay. Secondly, it will allow an opportunity, and this is usually a second part of the quote. So if you're getting quotes on this, you want to be sure you're asking all these questions. Does this include raising the house back up? Okay. And does it include any remediation or repairs on the inside, for example, drywall, plaster walls, those type things? So those will be important questions for you to raise as you're looking at your bids. But the push peer system is very common throughout this country. It's surprising how many homes, new and older homes, have foundation problems like the ones you're describing. Kim, I'm going to ask you to hold the line right there. We've got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll continue with more of this edition of Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, there are a couple different ways that you can get your questions to Ken. You can forward them through our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. You can email Ken at KenTheContractor.com. You can also leave him voicemails. And you can reach him anytime at our contact number. That's 1-800-614-2975. You can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor. And also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Answers. Again, our number is 800-614-2975. We'll take a quick break and come right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects, as well as single-family homes up and down the East Coast. He's also owned his own construction company for over 30 years, and now he brings his years of experience to the radio and the Internet to answer the questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you'd like to contact Ken, you can email him questions at KenTheContractor.com, or you can be part of the show by dialing 800-614-297. And we're back with Kim. She has a fairly substantial foundation issue with cracks. These are not hairline cracks. These are structural cracks that have opened up the point of several inches. And, Kim, as we're discussing this, you're asking about push-peer systems, and we talked a little bit about those, that push-peers are designed, they're with heavy-duty steel, and they're they're made to connect to your foundation. But Mm -hmm. a question I need to ask of you, are there any signs of other movement within the floor slab in your basement area? Uh, No, not on the slab itself. Mm -mm. Okay, so you're satisfied that the issue is really the load-bearing wall because there there are issues where push pins would not solve your problem if you're seeing any either upheaval or areas that are deflecting or sinking on that floor slab. No, we haven't noticed any major cracks or anything on the floor slab. It's just in the brick and the cinder block and then upstairs, you know, a little bit now in the ceiling. It's just a little crack, you know. Okay, well, unfortunately, these things never heal themselves, so you're going in the right direction. But what I want to recommend to you is, because this is not a few hundred dollar item, this is going to be a several thousand dollar repair. If you've already That's talked what I wanted to, to ask you, yeah, because we've got a quote for them from Manassas at JES, and it's in between like the fifteen to seventeen thousand range. Yeah, when you're when you're talking that kind of money, and frankly, for me, if I'm out buying something that's a few hundred dollars, I'm going to be pricing it at least among three different companies. You will find a huge variation, just as Jim has in products around his home, asphalt driveways, fencing, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to suggest to you that you contact at least three. Three 
reputable companies, because these are big dollars, yeah. and that you have them come out and make an inspection, okay. evaluate their bids, be sure you know what they're talking about. If you, there's any confusion, feel free to call me back, and we'll discuss it further. But okay. you, there are companies that are licensed and bonded to do this work, and that's going to be very important because if they come in and do something wrong, the whole side of your house could fail. You want to be sure that they have liability insurance. You want a certificate of insurance. You want a copy of their state license. And you want to be satisfied that everything is covered and by the book. Kim, we appreciate your call. Good luck with a major project. It's time now for one-on-one with Ken the Contractor, as Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and save money. Today, another product from QuickCrete to help with difficult mortar and concrete repairs. Joining me next is Mike Major. Mike is with the company that most of you are familiar with, QuickCrete. QuickCrete's a product that I talk about from time to time. I help answer your questions with many of their products. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Ken. Appreciate you having us. Yeah, glad you could be here. Now, not unlike the general construction industry, your products are ever-changing as well. Right. What we have, we've got a a new product. It's called Zip and Mix, and this is a repair mortar. And, And in this situation, Ken, repair mortar not just means the mortar that goes in between the bricks. In this application, mortar means anything that you need to use to repair concrete. This product can be used for fixing curbs, fixing chipped off sidewalks, fixing steps. You can use this product on all kinds of different applications. It's a product, it's a project in a bag is what this is. It's three pounds of material, uh, in a heavy duty baggie with a ziplock tire, ziplock across the top. So what you do is you take a cup of water, you put into the, to the bag, use your fingers and just knead the, the bag for just a like minute. Like dough. Exactly. And then it's got a trowel that's attached to the bag. You just take the trowel, you open the bag up, and you're ready to go. Sounds simple. It's very simple, and it's an easy way to keep more and more damage from occurring to your concrete. Because as you know, any time that you have a crack or a busted-off corner, water's going to get into that. And as water gets into it, it's going to freeze. Once it freezes during the wintertime, it will expand, and when it expands, it pops up more concrete. So these are ideal products to resolve problems that we all deal with in aging materials. You need to turn to QuickCrete. Now, where can they find out more about all these products? Thanks, Kenneth. Our website at QuickCrete.com, that's Q-U-I-K-R-E-T-E.com, has several calculators, and we, we feature projects of the month. We have calculators to show you how many bags you're going to need for whatever the project is that you have going on. We can also tell you about any one of our products. It goes into detail, tells you about all the specs of the different products. And another thing is we have on YouTube, you can go uh, to YouTube and type in QuickCrete and do a search there, and you're going to get 28 how-to videos that are going to show you how to repair a concrete surface. And it will take you step-by-step. It will tell you about the preparation, tell you about mixing the product, tell you about placing the product. It really makes it simple and makes it to where People don't need to be afraid of concrete products. So if you're a little leery of doing it yourself, this may instill just enough confidence that you're ready to tackle it. And as always, if you're not, hire a professional. There are plenty of people in your area that are skilled at working with this product. Mike, I appreciate you joining us today. A lot of valuable information for our listeners. Thank you very much, Ken. We appreciate the opportunity. And don't forget, you can always go to 
QuickCrete's website for more information on Zip and Mix. Oh, let's quickly tuck in a mailbag here. Seems like a very basic question, Ken. Anchoring a pre-built garage. Yeah, this comes to us from Robert out of Virginia. He said, we've discovered that a pre-built garage is actually cheaper than building one ourselves. He said, we'll be pouring a concrete pad, so that tells me there's a new slab going on. What's the best way to anchor it? Robert, if you're pouring a new slab, absolutely uh, the best way to anchor it, my book, is to put anchor bolts in that slab as you pour the slab, or at the very least, an anchoring strap that you can tie the structure to, keeps the wind from blowing it around, ties it down. But I have to tell you, in many parts of, of your area, the building departments will require building permits for this. That means they're going to inspect your foundation. They're also going to inspect your framing. So you always need to check with building department. You also need to check with your zoning department and be sure that you conform to all setbacks. In some cases, setbacks don't apply if a building's under a certain size. In other cases, they do. So I want you to pay attention to that and spend a little bit of time doing it right on the front side. Don't be penalized later. Now, for those of you that are saying, that's great, I've got an existing slab, but I want to put a building on top of it, have a pre-built show up, uh, what's the best way to handle that? You can always go back and use epoxy anchor bolts. You can drill into the concrete, get the pre-built structure, drill through the base plate, and secure that. Also, there are products called TAPCONS, T-A-P-C-O-N-S, that are designed for concrete anchoring, both in a vertical and horizontal manner. So in Robert's case, he's got a pre-built building. It should be pre-inspected, but for all of you that are doing something on-site by yourself, as I said, I want you to be sure if you need a permit that you get it. The pre-built should come out and not require a separate inspection. The slab may. You still need to check on that. But in every case, you need to check and be sure where you live. Zoning is not an issue because we don't want you to buy something that you just can't eat. Well, and you've mentioned this before. If you don't take the proper procedural steps, the zoning officials can come back and tell you to rip it all down. Well, they can legally, and most people don't read the fine print under the zoning ordinances where they live. But just the fact that you invest money doesn't mean that once it's there, it's there. You can be required by your governing authorities to get rid of it, which means if you spent $2,000 to put something up, now you're going to spend $500,000 to take it down and haul it off. You've thrown away a lot of money. You'd have had more fun putting it in the corner of the room and lighting it on fire. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And don't forget about Ken's website, KenTheContractor.com. There's a lot of very important and valuable home improvement information right there. And also, if you missed a recent program, you can click onto that and listen to podcasts of recent programs and listen to Ken's and read Ken's responses to our listener mail. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. Along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. If you'd like to join us, you can. Our phone lines are open at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Time now for this week's edition of In the News. As Ken brings you products, trends, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home, maintenance, remodeling, and new construction. This week's In the News is uh, something that's not startling to you, but if you're in the market to buy a new home, it may be something that you haven't really thought too much about that could affect how much you pay. This comes to us from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and this initially is all statistical data. It's about building permits, housing starts, and housing completion. Privately owned housing units that were authorized by building permits in June were at a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 755000 
Now, that is 19.3% above the June 2011 rate of 633,000. Why is that important to you? That says inventory is down, builders are acquiring more permits, and individuals are starting their own homes. We're going to conclude this in a moment. Housing starts, privately owned housing starts in June, were at a seasonally adjusted rate of 760. That's up 23.6%. And then housing completions also around the country were at a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 622,000. And that is up 7.2%. These numbers by themselves as a news event don't mean a lot to most people out there, but I want to translate this into dollars and cents for you. When we see building permits on the rise, whether it's individuals buying lots or land and starting their own home, or it's contractors or spec builders building homes, that says several things. One, it says that the price of land is likely to start moving upward again because people are buying and building. Two, contractors are developing again. That also says land prices will go up, but it tells us that inventory is being reduced throughout much of this country on the average. As inventory comes down, as foreclosures come down, not only will home prices start to go up, but you're going to have fewer properties to choose from. So these numbers translate to dollars and cents for all of us on a daily basis. If you're looking for a, to buy a home now, whether it's a new home or an existing property, now is a good time to do it. We're also starting to see a little bit of movement in the interest rates in some areas, depending on the mortgage term. So all of this can combine to say that if you wait another six months, another year, you can anticipate paying a little more money with a little less to choose from. And if you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, we've mentioned uh, you can either give us a call or you can send us an email. And we've got a couple. Well, this one comes to us from uh, Marcia out of Virginia. And I like this one because so many of you have this product in your home and no doubt you have issues with it. She says, we installed a new skylight recently following, listen to this, following the manufacturer's directions. During recent heavy rains, a major storm in our area, we found out we had a leak. Said it seems to work fine during ordinary rains in our region, but this storm was a doozy. Is this a common problem with skylights? Well, first I want to say not only regarding skylights, but as Jim has heard me say here many times before, and a lot of you have, that houses are not submarines. They are not designed to be underwater. Unfortunately, there are times that storms can be so severe, just as winds can be so strong, it rips shingles and other items, ridge vents off the exterior of your homes, can damage windows and garage doors, that in extremely severe weather, it is possible that you will see water come in around a door or a window or a skylight or through a ridge vent or an attic fan or a gable vent, something along those lines that maybe in 10 years you have never seen water come in. So the first thing I would say to you that if this is a fluke, if it's something that has never happened before, I wouldn't be overly alarmed, but I would be making an inspection because that typically tells me that something is likely loose that may have been damaged during that storm that allowed water to come in where you don't typically see water. So anytime you have a single event that's very unusual and you've had water come in anywhere, in Marsha's case, it's around a skylight, I would be having someone inspect that and be sure that that properly installed flashing was not ripped off by high winds and water blowing in a horizontal fashion. Typically, if a skylight is installed correctly, Marsha, it's going to perform long-term without leaks and without issues. It's normally something that happens after the fact 
that creates the type problem you're having. So that's my recommendation to you, and I think we've covered both of those. If you installed it right, it performs well for months and months or for a year or two, then you did a good job with it. But just see what might have come loose. It could be caulking. It could be flashing that's been pulled loose. See why you have a problem. There is some reason. Don't assume that it won't happen again. We've got time for one more mailbag. All right, this next one will come to us then from uh, Adam out of Virginia. And this one's quite, I won't say uncommon, but it is to a lot of people. It's not uncommon if you have siding, wood siding on your home. He says, what would cause nails and cedar siding to back out, some up to a half inch? So they're all over the house. He said, I've got at least a 100 of them, and I've pulled one out, and they're also, they're a screw shank uh, nail. Well, for those of you that have wood siding, not vinyl, not aluminum, not brick, but wood siding on your home, you may have experienced some of these problems. Many times it's the faster. Sometimes it's the way the wood was installed. Sometimes it happens to be just the amount of moisture that we have in the air from one season to the next. And in this case, Adam, I'm going to suggest that you check several things. One, you've pulled a nail out. I want you to check the nail size and be sure that when the wood siding was installed, it was what should have been a recommended size for that. Not knowing the thickness of your siding, I want to give you two things to work with. And this is just standard practice in the carpentry industry, and that is that a 6D or 6-penny finish nail is common for a thickness of a half inch or less. So you can pull it out and you can check, and if you're not sure what size the nail is, take it to one of your local lumber yards or hardware store, and they'll tell you whether it's a number 6 nail or not. If that siding is more than a half inch thick, then typically you're going to be looking at a number, an 8D or 8-penny nail uh, for a half inch or thicker siding. Now, also, the siding may have been installed without enough expansion room in the boards. It, it may have been nailed uh, too firmly, meaning that it could not expand, number one, and uh, it's going to find a way to buckle, and it's going to push those nails back out with all the moisture that's existed up and down the East Coast in the last few months. So it may be that it's taking on so much moisture that that board's expanding and actually pushing that nail out, whether it's a ring shank or a screw shank, it won't matter. If there's enough pressure... That's going to happen. So you need to see how that board or those boards are nailed all over the house. You also need to check and see if it's time to reseal the siding once it's good and dry or perhaps restain that so you don't have a moisture issue. Those are two of the most common items in terms of nails backing out of wood siding. The other thing would be that the nail simply is not long enough if it's a very thick siding or it was not properly attached, meaning it missed the wood studs, it went into the edge of the studs. That nail should go into the wood framing at least an inch and a half. And that doesn't mean an inch and a half nail, and then you've got a half-inch siding material. So if the nail's not going in that far, if the nail's catching the side of the stud in some cases, if the wood has been nailed too firmly where it cannot expand and contract, all of these are potential issues, and people with wood-sided houses will deal with this on a routine basis. So take a look at those. Good luck. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? We welcome your questions. You can email your questions to Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Remember, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. Email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. Or if you'd like to be part of the program, you can always reach Ken at our contact number. That's 800 614 2975. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. Again, if you'd like to be part of our program, you can reach us on the web at KenTheContractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor.